We've been preaching through 1 John, and the title of our sermon today is Our Confidence Before Him. Our Confidence Before Him. We're actually going to preach a few different sermons on confidence. We've got two coming up for the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5, but we're here at the end of chapter 3 in 1 John, and we're going to preach on our confidence before him. So I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. And as you do, I want to give you an illustration that always sticks out in my mind. When I became a Christian again in college, I came back to the church. It was through a, a campus ministry called Chi Alpha. And Chi Alpha, like many other campus ministries, went on missions trips during spring break. So I went with a group to help an um, inner city church in Atlanta that did all sorts of various outreach uh, and prayer ministry there on the streets of Atlanta. And it was quite a change from Charlottesville to go into inner city Atlanta. Um, I know some of you have been there before. And part of the, one of the various ministries that they did was an after-school ministry to kids who were there in the local elementary school. And they came into the rather large building that this ministry had there. And all these little kids are getting around, they're throwing their backpacks down, and they get some music going. And they get some music going, and they form this circle just right there, like organically, and I'm watching this. And these kids are like, I don't know, eight and they just start like freestyling there in the middle of the floor, like as they're getting their music going. And then they'd come out and dance, and some of them have like different little moves, and every kid would come out and dance. And I remember being struck, I was like, this is not planned. How do they know what they're doing? <laughs> they had such confidence to go into the middle of that circle to do whatever it is that they felt like doing, to do whatever little dance, whatever little freestyle. It doesn't matter if they were the best at it or they thought that, that like everyone else thought they were great. They had the confidence to enter into that circle and bust a move, <laughs> right? And I just, I remember saying like, I would not have the confidence to do that, right? I think some of you might resonate with that. I, I wouldn't have the confidence to do that. Confidence. With confidence in mind, please hear the reading of God's word from 1 John 3, 19 through 24. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So let's back up. Whenever you read something like that, you've got to know, what are we talking about? We're going to go back one verse. Verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, 
And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments that we bu- and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. For whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you have confidence before God? Do you have confidence before God? I'll ask it again. Do you have confidence before God? Well, let's examine that answer, shall we? It is a very important question. Do you have confidence before God? Before God What does before God mean, right? Before God, we are always before God. The Old Testament idiom for being in the presence of God is before the face of God. We live life before the face of God, meaning he sees us. You live life being seen by God. You live all of life being seen by God. There is actually nothing in life that is not seen by God. There is no quick, let's get there before he notices, okay? There is no before he notices. There is only before his face. He notices everything. Humorously, Jonah when he's told to go to Nineveh, flees before the face of God going to Tarshish. God can see you in Tarshish, okay? God can see you in Tarshish. God can see you in your car. God can see you right now. God can see you in your darkness. God can see you in your light. There is no darkness that is darkness to him. There is no hiding from God. All of life is seen by God before his face, Even the interior of your mind and of your heart is seen by God, okay? Outwardly, we're aware that we could be seen, right? Even though I know I've tried, and I'm sure you have tried to hide many things in your life. But interiorly, we think, well, if I keep this to myself, If I don't say it out loud, if I only think it, well, then it's hidden. Your interior is not hidden from God. He searches the heart. He knits you together in your mother's womb. Every thought, every inner word, every feeling is seen as a discrete thing before God. They're more real to God than they are to you. Your conscience, 
your heart is also seen is before God. And it's not just our current lives, right? The lives that we live here and the lives that go on inside of us. But there is coming a day where you will stand before God, where you will see him face to face. This is actually a major tenant of the gospel. When Paul goes into Athens, he says, in the gospel I preach that God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has chosen, Jesus Christ. And by this, resurrecting him from the dead, he has given us assurance. God resurrecting Jesus from the dead, which we celebrate in Easter, is assurance that we will all stand before him. In fact, Paul in Romans, you know, we hold up Romans as this epitome of description of the gospel, right? What does he say? That I preach by my gospel when all people will be judged and the secrets of men will be revealed before God. It is the good news of the gospel that each and every one of you each and every person that has gone before you, each and every person that comes after you, each and every person that has hurt you, each and every person that you have hurt will stand before God. We will be judged before God. And so I ask you again, do you have confidence before God Confidence. What is confidence? Confidence. Confide. With faith. With trust. Surely. The Greek word, kids, this is important to you if you have your kids' bulletin, is perisia. Say it again. Perisia. Can you say that? Perisia. It's a fun word to say. Parousia. What we translate is confidence. It's a word used frequently in Scripture. John, in his gospel, uses it frequently, and it means this. God, Jesus went out teaching with parousia in the synagogues. He preached openly. God spoke, or Jesus spoke to his disciples with parousia, not with figures of speech, but plainly, openly, candidly. In Acts, it's used to describe the apostles. As Peter gets up in Pentecost, as disciples are talking in all manners of languages, and people are like, are they drunk? And he gets up and with parousia and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Boldness. The temple authorities, the high priests, wonder at John and Peter, who are common, uneducated men, and wonder, how do these men talk with such parousia, such boldness? So openly, candidly, plainly, with boldness, 
And as we read from assurance of faith in Hebrews, it's used many times and we translate it as confidence or courage. Let us with parousia approach the throne of grace. Let us hold fast our parousia with confidence. Confidence. There's a subjective and objective element to confidence, right? Objectively, I should put my confidence in an airplane. Statistically, I am safer in the airplane than I am in my car. Subjectively, do I put my confidence in the airplane? No, I do not, right? When it, gets, when it starts going fast and gets off that runway, Elizabeth, I'm, uh, every time I'm just like, oh, Lord Jesus. I'm just waiting for that bump, and I'm just, I'm like, it's like I'm going to explode, right? Okay, like, I think because my dad told me one time when I was younger, he's like, oh, I remember a flight to Australia, and we hit a dead patch of air, and we just plopped 10,000 feet. And I was like, okay, like, the airplane, objectively, is something to put my confidence in, to take hold of, almost like a roller coaster cart, right? Put the buckle down and hold on, right? It is a thing of confidence. But it really matters whether I feel confident, doesn't it? It might hold me, but if I don't feel confident, I'm not going to get on the roller coaster. <laughs> I'm not going to get in, or I'm going to hyperventilate the whole way, the whole very safe way, okay? While I could cruise and text on my phone and not pay attention on the highway. <laughs> Overconfidence. There's an objective and subjective element to confidence, and both really are necessary to say that we have confidence to subjectively feel confidence in something that we should not put our confidence in is called foolishness. To not subjectively feel confident in something that we should objectively put our confidence in, I don't know what you call it, worry, cowardness. We have to feel rightly the thing that rightly should have our confidence in it. And so what are examples of confidence? There's a lot of relational elements to confidence. A spouse should have confidence to call their spouse during the day and get a response. Right? My children feel confidence to enter into my room while I have a meeting and show me the picture that they just drew. A participatory citizen has confidence to show up, stand up, and speak up at the council meeting because they have right to be there. Their relationship gives them right. And I want to read this quote from a brother theologian 
Hans Urs von Balthasar. It's quite a name, right? And he says this, originally this word parisia refers to the privilege of the full citizen's freedom of speech. It indicates the right to say everything and the corresponding interior attitude, i.e. frankness of speech and openness to the truth. The full citizen's freedom of speech, the right to say everything, and the corresponding interior attitude, right? The right, the objective element of confidence and the interior attitude, the subjective aspect of confidence. We see then confidence, as I said, about children before their parents, a spouse with their spouse, a citizen before the court. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. before the Alabama police. I think of Martin Luther before the imperial court. They stand in their confidence. I think of the Syrophoenician woman who went up to Jesus and begged for crumbs from the table. I think of the Gentile commander who said, you don't even have to enter my house, Jesus. He told Jesus what he could do and asked him to do it. I think of the friends that took their paralyzed friend and when they could not find a way to Jesus, got up on someone's roof, that is not their roof, put a hole in it, and lowered their friend down to Jesus. That's confidence. Right? I think of David telling God to rouse himself. I think of Moses telling God, show yourself. I think of Jacob telling God, prove yourself. I think of Job telling God, defend yourself. Excuse yourself, God. I think of Adam and Eve who are naked and unashamed before God. That's confidence. So, do you have confidence before God? Well, let's read what the scripture says. Verse 21. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You are told, if you are in Christ, that you have confidence before God if your heart does not condemn you. That's a big if, isn't it? I think it's a big if. Maybe you think it's a small if. I think it's a pretty big if as I read this. If your heart does not condemn you, you have confidence before God. 
Well, let's examine that. If your heart does not condemn you, what is your heart? Your conscience. The conscience, that inner voice that speaks to us, whispers to us, moves us, and guides us, it can be really nice. This is going to be a great day. You are the man. Of course they got out of your way. Of course they're giving that to you. It can be a little confused. It can be not so nice. You did that again, didn't you? You're such an idiot. No one likes you anyway. Your conscience can whisper You can have a clear conscience or a burdened conscience. You can have a free conscience or a guilty conscience. You can have a clean conscience. You can have a condemned conscience. So let's ask that question. What conscience do you have this morning? How is your conscience this morning? Is it clear? Well, let's ask why. It may be because we don't really pay attention to things. It is really easy to be numbed. And it's really easy to have certain things drown out the rest of them, right? It is almost impossible for me to hear anything if one of my children is crying, right? There are loud things that can clear out everything else. Or there can just be a white noise that just kind of silences and numbs it all. The issue with just asking us if our conscience is clear is that we have to recognize that our conscience is not always terribly trustworthy. Okay? Your conscience is not utterly broken. It can be oriented correctly, but it is what we call utterly depraved. It's not utterly broken, but it is utterly depraved. That is disoriented, misoriented. It is a faulty compass. Could it get you where you need to go? It could. It's best to check it against something that works. Okay? God has given us his commands his instructions, his standards, as it says here, right? Keep his commands. His commands act like a calibration for our compass, act for a calibration for our conscience. It's letting us know where it should be oriented. And that's important because sometimes we may have a clear conscience because we are not paying attention to the commandments, that can happen outside of the church. If you do not recognize Jesus Christ as Lord, you do not have the right set of instructions. I guarantee you. But it can also happen, brothers and sisters, within the church very easily. False gospels abound. Idols abound. Remember, Israel made the golden calf to be Yahweh. It is very easy 
to pick and choose what commandments we want to let bear on our conscience. We might feel guilty about gossiping, but not any against gluttony. We might feel guilty about not reading our Bibles and attending to the scriptures, but not feel anything at all about posting terrible little comments about our neighbors. All of the commandments of God need to be followed. All the instructions need to be read, or you're going to get to the end and your Lego thing is not going to work, right? All of them have to be followed. Not the ones that culturally we believe in, but the ones that are actually given to us just as he commanded us. I think it would be hard to say with that in mind that we actually have a clear conscience. Or you might think that and you might get a different response from God who's going to be like, do you have a clear conscience then? The benefit of knowing the commandments of God is that it can calibrate our conscience correctly. Maybe the downside is that your conscience will be calibrated correctly and you will see correctly how lost you might actually be. The law, the commandments of God do condemn our hearts and they should. If you do not love your neighbor in word and in, or in deed and in truth, and you read, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, you should feel a pang. It shows that your nervous system, your conscience is working well. God is at work in your conscience. It is good for our conscience to be condemned then. But it's better, it's better, better news, verse 20. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God is greater than your heart and he knows everything. God is greater than your sense of failure. God is greater than your want of conformity. God is greater than what you have not done. God is greater than what you have done. God's voice is louder than any other. God is greater and he knows everything. He's not wrong. He hasn't overlooked something. He hasn't misjudged you. <laughs> Your conscience has a tendency to misjudge you. God has no tendency. What did I say in the communicants class? God is consistent and holy and true. He does not misjudge us. He is greater he is greater than any 
thing that is weighing on your conscience. He's greater than all the worldly expectations that weigh on your conscience. Things that maybe don't even sins. I don't have this right job. I'm failing at this. This broke me. Right? I'm never going to get into the right school. God is greater than all those things. None of those things define your identity as much as God does. Amen? He is greater than those things. He's also greater than the things he says, than his, than his condemnations. I am greater than the fact that you had an affair. I am greater than your addiction. I am greater than your gossiping, angry heart. I am greater than all of your worries. I am greater than this person that you fear. And do you know how God became greater? How he shows us, shows us that we might subjectively know in Jesus Christ, who became lesser. God became lesser. He came under us. He came under all of our worries. He who was no sin became sin for us to bear that we might become the righteousness of God, to bear all of our heavy loads. Come unto me, all you who are heavy, burdened and heavy laden. What's happening to all those loads? Jesus is taking them. That's a lot of loads. He takes them. He became the servant. He became lesser that you might have a lighter yoke. That you might know a freedom. But more than that, the one who became lesser, we proclaim is resurrected from the dead. Amen? Not even death, not even death could stop Jesus. Not even death could stop Jesus. Death, the greatest wage of sin is death, and God overcame death. He is greater than death. And so, brothers and sisters, whatever you are feeling this morning, if your heart condemns you, Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Even if your conscience is like a mob with stones that has caught you red-handed. Because you might be saying, but I've done some things. Okay, then get dragged out in the street. Come to Jesus with a mob with stones. You can give him your stones if you want to be condemned. Go ahead. Give him, come in the mob, come before Jesus, and let him ask your conscience, he who is without sin, why don't you cast the first stone? And as they melt away before Jesus, let him say to you, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. 
For this reason I came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. To save the woman. To save you. Go and sin no more. Think, hear that as a remedy from the doctor. Go and sin no more. Because you could go sin and you'll come back in the right same place. But remember, God is consistent. If the next day you're dragged out by the same mob, you have the same Jesus. Amen? Okay. Go and sin no more is like a remedy. Y'all who are at Camp Willow Run, you remember Tanner's example, right, of the surgeon? The surgeon can fix your Achilles, right? He can close up the gap. He can reunify your Achilles. He can bring together that which is separated. But if you don't exercise, you will not run again. Okay? God has healed us for a purpose. Just because he healed you doesn't mean you're going to live into that purpose. In fact, if you just lay on the couch and eat Cheetos, if you then try to get up and go do something, you might find yourself back in the operating room. You see what I'm saying? We need to work out our salvation. You need to exercise. That's what he's saying. Go and sin no more, right? This is why we continue to follow the commandments because the only hope, the only source that we have to live into our salvation is to believe Jesus and do what he says. Just like the only hope you have for recovery is to do what your doctor says to do. Amen? And so when we are condemned, the question, do you have confidence before God? In Christ, that answer is yes. It is yes. You are being invited subjectively to feel it, what is objectively true. He is your confidence. Jesus reigns at the right hand of God. Jesus is before God. He was before God, with God, into eternity, and he is now resurrected with God before his face, ever living to make intercession for you. He is your confidence. And if Jesus, who does not condemn you, who is greater than your heart, who has taken on the penalty, who is himself the source of you to follow him, if he is before God, do you have confidence before God? Yes, I want you to live into that. He wants you to live into that. Therefore, Paul says, therefore now who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even when your heart condemns you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are being invited to have confidence before God. So Lord, I give you thanks and I praise you 
you who is our confidence. Allow us to feel it. Keep us from all sin that would cloud our conscience and distort our confidence. And may we take hold of you and put all of our hope in you, who is unshakably at the right hand of God. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.